so it's really good to be here again today. We're going to talk about uh, visiting the underground magical world of mycorrhiza. And this is one of those topics that for most of us farmers, we probably don't know a lot about and don't understand it. And I put myself in that category. And I hadn't, if I might not even heard of the word until 2004. My introduction to mycorrhiza was with a um, USDA researcher by the name of David Dowds. And he asked if I wanted to be involved in a project that at the time, the point of this project was to actually create and grow mycorrhiza to be able to positively influence my vegetable crops, particularly with tomatoes. And his idea was to actually use a, a very good host plant. In this case, it was bahia grass. And you can see that in the right-hand side of your picture there where they were essentially inoculated with mycorrhiza and then the, they multiplied. And then we used that plant media and mixed it in, as you see on the left, for the transplants of our tomatoes when you grow them like in the greenhouse to start the plants. So then when we take the plants to the field, we would essentially be inoculating the field with mycorrhiza. So... Um, in the context of our conversation today, which is directly related more so to cover crops, this is a little bit out of that topic, but that's how I was introduced to it. And to this day, uh, David continues to research and study this primarily for uh, vegetable growers in not only uh, vegetable growing uh, you know, regions, uh, here uh, in the States or Canada, but worldwide, particularly in areas that have poor soils. And as we'll understand as we go through here, to be able to take advantage of what mycorrhiza does where farmers are simply unable to afford buying fertilizer uh, or they just it's just not available. So that's part of, that's that's kind of my history. That's how I was introduced to it. So uh, for our conversation today, though, we're going to associate it more directly with cover crops. And um, I've had this cool picture for a long time. I think it's the best picture I've seen to demonstrate what we're talking about. And I'm going to go through here and um, kind of here in a couple minutes, I'm going to ask Tannis Axton to come on, one of our members, to share about what she is doing on their farm and herself personally in helping to understand this better so that we can manage it better. But uh, this part of this picture here is under magnification and essentially the top more or less two thirds of that picture is across uh, of a root, uh, a root, um, a very small root magnified many times. And the darker uh, thing that you see in there is actually the mycorrhiza fungi and it actually goes inside the root of a plant and comes outside that root and goes into the soil. So it looks almost like a root hair and in some ways it kind of is functioning like a root hair 
but it's so much more than that because root hairs typically aren't that long and mycorrhizae can be longer. So that just gives you a framework of what we're talking about here. We're talking about a fungi or fungi, fungus in the soil that actually uh, is something that is critical for plant uh, uptake of nutrients. So just a couple by means of definition here. Uh, and I, I was doing my preparation for this, and I found some pretty good definitions that I thought really are very understandable. Because sometimes this topic, depending on who you're reading or who you're talking about, it gets very, very scientific. And it's like you just glaze over and like, what are you saying? How is that practical for me as a farmer? Um, but anyway, so a muscular mycorrhizal fungi are the most important mycorrhizal and agricultural systems due to the fact that they colonize the majority of crop plants. So all the crops that we're working with, for the most part, have a strong need or association for this. And this is why it's so important and why cover crops come into play here because cover crops can actually enhance this. And and I'll just say, you know, right up front, this is where this is where some of our um, evidence comes from, where we can reduce fertilizers in some areas once we get this system functioning and maximizing what it can do. So it's helpful for us to understand more so how this works, and so we can better manage it. So another, a few other key things that need to happen. So the fungi uh, needs to associate with plant roots to survive. So it's this association that sustains a mutually beneficial relationship between the fungi and the plant. And again, it's like a bridge, if you will, or it's just like an extra uh, plant root hairs that go out into the soil and can able to bring in nutrients. And what is kind of cool about this is what they 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 share uh, they share different aspects that help each other, symbiotic. So in return for the sugars from the plant now, the long thread-like structures of the fungi, or scientifically it's called the hyphae, they act as an extension of a plant's root system and increase a plant's access to the more immobile nutrients like phosphorus, zinc, and copper. See, nitrate is a main nutrient, but the nitrates can flow through the water, excuse me, through the soil. In this case, when we're talking about something like phosphorus, it's rather immobile for the most part. And there's two others listed there as well. And this is where the fungi, the mycorrhizae fungi, can go out in, and, and essentially make the root system bigger uh, to, to be able to do this. So obviously we want mycorrhizal fungi uh, to help us in our plant growth needs. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, we, we have heard about plant root hairs, and they're very difficult to see, but they can be up to two meters, two millimeters long, go out into the soil. But mycorrhizae hyphae can explore a much greater volume of the soil and maybe can send sometimes up to 15 centimeters. 
from the plant roots. So obviously it's multiple times more. When you, when you think of all the plant roots a plant has, and if you can just imagine uh, that extending out uh, many times more, you can just quickly understand how this is such a helpful thing for the plants to be able to grow. So um, this relationship between the mycorrhizae and the crop plants often enhances plant growth and yield. And I would say to the degree that it does that, does factor in many variables. It does depend on, you know, just the makeup of your soil um, and so forth. And, and as far as what I did three years of research here, primarily with my tomatoes, and we got about a 5% yield increase where we did this. Now, in a crop, in a cash crop like corn or wheat, 5% is not that big of a deal. It's a bigger deal in tomatoes. It's a higher value, a higher valuable crop and so forth. Um, the, as I outlined with the experiment that, that we did here, this was more in a controlled situation. We were actually growing our own mycorrhizae, and it was a, it was a way to do this. Um, and I, I guess I'll just have to say that it kind of came down for me personally. It might have been more bother than it was worth because what I found out uh, with more intensive use of cover crops and crop rotation, I could essentially mimic what we were trying to do. And by the end of the trials, we cross-referenced certain things, and and um, and and it, it just for me to go through the process of what was um, what was done here, what the research that was done. It I was essentially doing it in the field, and I think that's what we're interested in today. Uh, that doesn't mean the research was uh, a dead end because there's certainly applications for people who are like growing vegetables and stuff like that that they can actually jump start their mycorrhizae fungi by doing that. Uh, my point and what I found out here is we can do this by simply trying to grow the right cover crops or the right cash crops and understanding how they function. And I'm going to show you an example up here. Uh, coming up soon, it was really interesting uh, for, for me to see firsthand uh, the function of, of mycorrhiza in a soil. So, uh, winding up here, and Tannis, you can get ready. The next slide is going to be yours. Um, but mycorrhizae have also been credited with increasing a plant's disease resistance. And I think that there's some that, that's something that we need to start paying attention to a little bit more. Uh, not just the fertility aspect, but disease as well. And also improving, improving a plant's ability to grow under drought conditions and improving soil structure. So there's multiple things that our mycorrhiza fungi do for us. And uh, I, I feel like we're just in kindergarten yet uh, with this understanding this. Uh, but there are some... There's some researchers out there who have been really on this over the years. And I know for myself, sometimes when you first hear about things like this, it's hard to understand it. But you have to hear it five times uh, before you begin to understand it. So uh, Tannis has been 
uh, actively looking into this. And I just, uh, again, introduced uh, Derek and, and Tannis Axton from Saskatchewan. They are members of our group here. So, Tannis, I got you up here. If you just want to take it away from here, I got a couple slides. You can tell me when, I'm, when I should advance it. Uh, just tell us just um, a little bit about what, what you're learning in the mycorrhiza. Okay, well, Derek and I, you know, saying we've been to lots of soil health conferences and you hear about mycorrhizal fungi and how great it is, and we wondered if we had it. So when we heard that Dr. Wendy Tahari was doing a workshop on how to identify whether it's in your roots or not, we took advantage of that and went and learned. It's a bit of a process, and, you know, getting the roots, washing them, clearing them, staining them and then looking at them under the microscope. But we took pretty much roots from everything we had grown in 2016 down to David Brands where the course was. And we were pleasantly surprised to find quite a bit of colonization. Um, the pictures, this one is a flax root. Last summer, I would have taken this picture. Um, it's always hard to get good pictures. You always see better with the microscope. but. Um, the dye uh, stains the AMF, and so you see thin lines, kind of, so the dark middle, this basically, this is a root, so the dark middle is the steel of the root, and then a little bit lighter on each side is the cortex with the cells. And you can see dark lines running along, which would be hyphae, and then some cells you can see are kind of filled, there's a better picture coming up, but you know, filled, and those are the arbuscules. Um, yeah, there's a bit better picture. The arbuscules, Latin term for tr tiny tree, so it's kind of what they look like. They branch out, um, and these fine filaments, they just increase the surface area for nutrient exchange. So you can actual, actually score your colonization. I haven't quite got there. I'm just happy if Did we lose you? Oh, I don't know. Did you? Uh, now I hear you. Good. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, do you want to go to the next slide? Okay. Coming up. It takes like a couple seconds. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So this one was Harry Vetch, and it was one of the highest I had found for colonization. Um, once again, you got the dark brown kind of down the middle. That's just the steel of the root. And then all of the black stuff, that's the dye that our, the AMF has soaked up. So it was pretty much solid um, colonization. Uh, I think the next one, Steve, shows an There you molecule. go. Yeah, this is the best picture I've got. So you can see the dark lines, the fungal hyphae, they run kind of between cell walls and then they branch into and right in the middle there is kind of your perfect little tree structure with these filaments branching out and that's where your nutrient exchange is going to take place. Um, I don't know. That's about all no, that, I know. That's really great. I'm just curious what what mag, what magnification is this? You know. It would be 400. 400. So do you is this so do I understand you took these roots 
with Wendy's course, or did you buy a microscope that's this good? Well, actually, I already had a microscope, but with the course, um, she made us buy another one. So I've got two, yeah. but it's, it's just a standard microscope. Okay. I mean, it goes to a higher power than that even, but 400 is what I look at pretty much all the biology with and the roots. Well, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I, I I never I see the tree there in the middle. That's what you're referring to. So, not only, yeah, it, it really does branch out and um, and really infiltrates the root. That's that's pretty fascinating. Um, so, I'm going to talk a little bit later. But anything you have checked that you did not, you could not find mycorrhizae on. Well, there has been, but like I tell Derek, I don't, <laughs> sometimes it's technique wow. more than, and I haven't, I mean, I'd love to do this every week, mm-hmm. but time yeah. is limited, so sure. you've got to cook it the right amount, you've got to diet the exact amount, uh-huh. so um, I would have to repeat it a few times to really know exactly, before I was, you know, conclusive in it with mm-hmm. anything. What do you, what's you, uh... Uh, yours and Derek's um, opinion of what, so what does this mean? Okay, this is cool. These pictures are cool. But how do you operate, how do you, how does this change the way you manage things? Are, are, are you thinking about, what, what are you thinking about here and knowing what to do here? Well, one of the major changes we've made is we include flax now in uh-huh. all of our covers. Ah, one of the big ones, you know, even just five pounds seems, you know, to give us a pretty good population. It's, you know, other than hairy vetch, it's probably the best colonization that we've seen consistently. Okay. So we're, we're having flat. Anyway, it's relatively cheap. It's a small seed. Yep. You know, it winter terminates. Yep. You, you don't have to worry about hard seed issues like hairy vetch. Yep. So that's, I guess that's been one of the main ones we've done. We were, you know, and... I know Rick Bieber and some of those guys have been putting it into their winter wheat even. So, you know, when they establish their winter wheat, they include five or seven pounds, even ten. Yeah. You know, because flax is relatively non-competitive, so it's not going to cause you a lot of problems. Uh-huh. So you're saying um, they, they plant flax with the wheat, then the flax will winter kill, right? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. That's interesting. That's the first I heard that. But that's... That's... Um, I think that's a, that's a classic example of applying this knowledge to our cropping systems. So anything else you two want to add? Those have been our best. I mean, we've seen colonization in almost everything. I think the, the weaker ones were buckwheat. I mean, obviously the brassicas we didn't even check, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't. Right. But I think buckwheat was probably our weakest, which mm-hmm. we were a little disappointed in. Uh-huh. But I mean, there was other benefits. The buckwheat, their sylvita readings were probably the highest on our buckwheat. Ah. So I mean, there's this is why we have. Um, mm-hmm. I guess this is why we have multi-species, right? Right. Because they all have their benefits. Yep. Well, that's, okay. Yeah, that's, I guess that's. Go ahead. No, that was it. That's that's. I guess that's the bulk of it. That's yeah. that's what we learned. Yeah. Well, thank you, and we'll wait to the end for any other questions here. But uh, well, that's that's really good. I really appreciate. It. I. I'm I'm seriously thinking about having a a part two of this coming up because there's so much to share on it, and so uh, that'll come up probably in the next couple months or so. But 
just moving right along here, and some of these were discussed here on the high dependency, low dependency, and non-host of mycorrhiza. It was already mentioned here, uh, you look on the left-hand side, the peas, beans, and other legumes, Harry Vetz was mentioned, should have put that in there, uh, flax, of course, sunflowers, even corn is, is good, um, and other warm season grasses. Warm season grasses uh, seem to be all pretty much uh, very helpful there. And uh, Now, when we talk about lower ones, there, uh, wheat was mentioned, other cereals, and that's, that's um, there's, there's, I'm hearing more and more people taking a, a cash crop and, inter, or, um, and mixing other types of, we'll call them cover crops, with that for a period of time, uh, even rape seed as a cash crop, oil seed rape, or canola for that matter, mixing other uh, species with it, sometimes that you expect them to winter kill and other times uh, maybe not. I've heard of uh, mixing crimson clover uh, with that. Now that, that's limited there where it might overwinter but, or not. But anyway, and of course the non-host is pretty much the brassicas and then uh, lupins also were listed as a non-host. So um, it's important to understand sometimes what non-hosts do. And there's this uh, incident that happened in Iowa a couple years ago that I was involved with. And uh, if you look at this picture, what you can see is purple corn. And also there was radishes there, and this would have been in the end of May. And you can see the decaying radishes with their holes. Uh, what this particular field had been a prevented planting plant field. It was too wet. It was unable to be planted. And so there was no corn that grew there. And what they did then, what this farmer did is went in in August and planted radishes, straight radishes. And then um, got this, uh, and it was, uh, again, uh, you, can, you can see uh, what it looks like there. We got a, we got a phosphorus deficiency in the soil test really didn't say low on phosphorus, um, but upon uh, a field visit and, and thinking, our theory, again, our theory was that it was waterlogged the year before. Uh, he had tilled it up. Then he planted radishes. Radishes are a non-host for mycorrhizae, as we had listed before. Planted his corn and showed up phosphorus deficient. Our theory ended up to be we thought that the mycorrhizal was knocked way back or almost non-existent because of those series of events that occurred. Now, what would have been really, really cool is if we would have, like, mixed oats or something else with the radish to see if our theory or our hypothesis there would have, would have been right or not. But... Um, I'm just going to suggest here some of the factors that discourage mycorrhizal fungi is tillage because you're ripping up like the roots, like the hyphae. You're, you're not allowing them to grow. Um, and non-host plants, and we talked about in this case brassicas, uh, doesn't say you don't plant brassicas. Simply if you have a lower situation, a situation where there's lower mycorrhizal there, brassicas is not going to help. Now, when I worked with David Dowds, in, as I initially shared here, that was right during the time. It was 2004 to 2006. That was right during the time where the radish was just starting to get popular. 
and I was growing them here and, and so forth. He was concerned as a mycorrhizologist, that's a word, uh, that I was going to knock down my population. And he was concerned. He said, you better be careful, Steve. You may, you may run into a dead end here. Well, he actually tested my soil, tested my crops, and found out that even though I didn't increase it, I didn't negatively uh, uh, discourage it either. And part of that was using some uh, mixes, and pl plus my soil was relatively healthy anyway. So um, this is another reason to use mixes, and Derek actually said that here a couple minutes ago. Uh, and then when, when water is saturated, it's saturated in a field that can knock it back as well. And that's what happened in this case here. So I can't be positive that this is an actual uh, direct mycorrhizal effect, but it's certainly seen to be, and we have quite a few people in looking at this field. So it's, it's interesting nonetheless. So uh, what are factors that encourage it? And... Um, Pretty much we've won, went over this, but this is just uh, in review here. No soil disturbance. Uh, if you can eliminate that or limit it as much as possible, that's going to help. And then, of course, providing host plants. And when I say host plants, that could either be a cash crop or a cover crop. You know, the soil doesn't know the difference. Um, the mycorrhizae doesn't know the difference. But just to somehow have host plants there to encourage it and then to provide living roots year-round. And I'll just say as, as much as possible. Uh, so when we can do these things, then we're going to increase the benefit of what mycorrhizal has to offer. And, and I'll just um, I'll summarize this, and you can get your questions ready. You can either type them in or you can, or I'll mute everybody here in a second. So, so get your questions ready. But here, here's my... I guess you'd say my analysis of this subject, I think that this could could possibly be the biggest opportunity that that we need to better understand for the long-term viability of agriculture. In other words, I think there's tremendous opportunity here, and um, part of that is is in our fertility that we can utilize this, and I think we can reduce our purchased inputs and disease resistance um, to probably help mitigate against weather extremes. And this, you know, we, 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 we say that cover crops can do all these things I just mentioned, but how do they do it? Why do they do it? And I think now we're zoning in to get more specific in how we manage in our uh, farming systems to be able to take a, advantage of some of the benefits that, that we have literally right out there in our fields. We just have to give them a chance, and learning how to manage that is is uh, really important. So uh, any of you have any questions, just unmute yourself. Um, feel free to ask any questions, either if I don't know, maybe someone else will, or I can research a little bit. So. Uh, what are some questions that any of you have on this topic? Or or I'll say, too, any other things you would like to add? Marty? Steve, I have a question. This is Marty. Yep. Uh, I have problems with white mold in my soybeans, and this spraying these fungicides, is that going to harm my fungi, the microbes fungi? Um, 
Bananas and, and uh, Derek, get ready. I'd like you to respond to that. Uh, I have heard this discussion before, but I don't know the answer if it's directly related. I will say this, that fungicides do kill sometimes. They kill beneficial fungi. Um, so, Tannis or, or Derek, what, what, is your, what would be your perspective on that? Yeah, from a lot of the studies I've re read, it says, yeah, may be harmed by fungicide. I don't think the studies or the data is actually out there. So, it's, yeah, it would be nice to know for sure, but it sounds like it is harmful. Yeah, I, you know, you gotta, we got to do what we are comfortable with. Um, and that's kind of my answer. I mean, just from my own experience, Marty, um, I'm, I'm a small, a real, a real small grower, relatively speaking here. Um, I, I don't, I don't apply fungicides to my corn and soybeans. It's not my main bread and butter. Um, that being said, I have 49 acres of pumpkins and squash. And even though I am reducing some, uh, I do rely on fungicides for some of those diseases there. And yes, I'm sure I'm probably hurting some things. Uh, I look at agriculture is, is a compromise, and we do the best we can. So for me personally, I am not using fungicides on some of my lower value crops, some of my higher value crops. Um, I mean, I'm not out there like sparing nothing. It's not that. But um, I, I would hate to think of, uh, of going without any fungicides in my pumpkin. So that's just, that's just where I'm coming from. I think the answer to your question is it might be. Um, but I can't, I'm not going to be here and say you shouldn't spray for white mold um, at this point because I don't fully understand everything. Is there anyone else have perspective on that? Or you have a follow-up, Marty? Uh, not really. It's just that, you know, I went to 30-inch rows for this reason and cut my population down to 110 to 120,000. Mm -hmm. And it just, I still have problems with it. Okay. Lauren, do you have an opinion on that? I see you're on. Is there anything that you... Um, would have a comment on that? I was hoping Jill would be here to help you out with that, but uh, I'm sitting here at Chris Teachouts, and, you know, we're, mm -hmm. as far as fungicide goes, I'm not using any, but, you know, we haven't had to since, you know, we went back to 30-inch rows and all that, too, so mm -hmm. the lower population. Mm-hmm. You cut out there at the end. I don't know if you can repeat. You said something about lower population. The lower population and that have helped us. In, you know, if we get much above 135, 140,000, we'll still have a white mold okay. issue. But yeah, I think it depends a lot on the growing season. Like we've had a timely rains this year, and the moist soil is always moist, so that's got a lot of problems with it. Well, I think our savior this year is going to be dicambia. Okay. Gotta look for the bright side. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Does anyone else have any questions uh, for our topic here on uh, the mycorrhiza? Okay. Well, Steve, yeah. Well, yeah, it's not really a question, more of a comment. You were just talking about earlier about things that, that I guess, have negative impacts on mycorrhizal populations. Mm -hmm. And it's one that Wendy was pretty definite about was, was high phosphorus levels. Ah. So 
added to, um, she was pretty definite that that caused, you know, decrease of colonization. Well, that or they'll just, they'll stop working. If there's excess provided, you know, commercially, the AMF will just shut down because basically she said they get lazy. If it's there, yeah. they're yeah. not going to do the work. Right. Now, when you said excess, did she provide a threshold of what excess actually is? Is it in pounds per acre, parts per million, or either or? I don't think she ever really gave us a yeah. number. Um, yeah. She basically talked more like added phosphorus. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and take that for what it, you know, take yeah. that for what it is. I mean, everybody's levels are different and everybody's soils are different, you know. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, we took it, I guess, as being added. So we actually took phosphorus out of our starter this spring okay. because of that. Yeah, um, I uh, was uh, had the opportunity to take on a couple fields in the neighborhood here that were that was very very high in phosphorus and um, and it certainly it certainly was different than the fields that I'm used to farming on my farm here and I'm not sure if that was a culprit or not but they certainly didn't perform what I was expecting uh, maybe that was part of the the, the culprit so. I believe uh, Mark is on here from Ohio. Uh, Mark, is there any, I don't know if you can turn your microphone on. Is there any questions you have on this topic or any uh, comments if you care to? Uh, Lauren here. I, I'm going to try to get some pictures of some uh, test plots today. Okay. So if you uh, want to see Reisel in action. Yep. He's test plots. He left to check in every treatment. Mm -hmm. And you see like two, you know, right to the next row or two where the nitrogen sharing and that has taken effect. I see. Yeah, please share that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, and that, another one we seen yesterday is where he's got a pumpkin patch out in the middle of the field. Yeah. You can tell five feet out into the cornfield where, where the pumpkin is having an effect on the corn. What's the effect? The corn is actually greener. And, you know, about two foot, or not, you know, almost a foot taller. Yeah. And think, greener. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> that's yesterday, it's the monocot, diacot uh, sharing in that. Well, I did a little thing here. We had, uh, remember early on, those of you who were on, I had some uh, severe slug damage. And on, on one field, we just had this little tiny area. And I wanted to grow a squash there, and I wanted to isolate it to keep the seeds for next year. So we planted some squash in there. So the corn is relatively thin, but it was amazing uh, how the corn came around and also how nice the little squash looked in there. And I'm certainly not advocating relay cropping with corn and, pump and squash at this point, but nonetheless, it was just a little tiny glimpse into, you know, some of this stuff that, uh, you know, you heard about the, the, the three sisters, I think, the Native Americans used to do, was squash, corn, and beans. And they planted them together, and it's the same principle we're using now with multiple species of cover crops. Uh, and some people are trying to do multiple species of cash crops now. And it certainly is a very, very fine line sometimes between success and failure there, but uh, it certainly is intriguing, I'll say that. 